Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Ben Poling is a counselor at a New Day Counseling Center in Portland, Oregon. He specializes in identity, relationships, and sexual addiction. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council. When is pornography a problem? Or when pornography is actually a problem? Uh, Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I am Reese Pissimio. I'm Ben Poling. And we are here to talk about porn because it's just so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, excited to have uh, a good friend, good colleague, uh, Maitu Scola, in the recording space with us again today. Well, for the first time, uh, it's been great to look forward to this. Uh, but hello, Matus, and welcome. Hello, hello everyone, and thanks for having me here in, in your podcast. Uh, yeah, it's a great pleasure to see you guys. <laughs> Excellent, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's been it's been a fun thing as we so we all uh, so this is another one where this is an all CSAD cast I think too because uh, we all did the the certified sex addiction therapy modules and I know I think Matus, you and me we were in Colorado together and then. Yeah. I think we were all in Arizona together, and then mm -hmm. you and me, yes. Ben. We, uh, yeah. So, and now we're spread across the country yet again. We were at two modules in Arizona, yeah. We were, yeah. Or, mm -hmm. well, I think our first one was in Colorado, and then what that was mod mm -hmm. two, and then yeah. we all had mod four in uh, in Arizona. So, yes, good times. Uh, but yeah, so Matisse, do tell, where are you from and what is your corner of the counseling clinical world and uh, what are some of the interesting things about you there? Uh, so I'm originally from Poland, Warsaw, and uh, I graduated from uh, clinical psychology there. I was working there as a clinician and um, during the first years of my work i was meeting a lot of uh, people who were seeking treatment because of the problematic pornography use uh, sex addiction and that time there was no diagnostic criteria for that uh, there was no methods uh, you know like guidelines how to help them um, especially in, in polish language um, and at some point in 2013, I decided to focus on the research in this topic. Uh, and this research career brought me to US, uh, to University of California, San Diego. And currently I'm um, here right now at, uh, in San Diego. And uh, I try to combine research with, with clinical work. Uh, also with some trainings for uh, students of psychology about uh, behavioral addiction, mostly compulsive sexual behaviors. That's great. So with the, with the research, I mean, I was scrolling a bit through the, the long list of, of articles and writings that, that you've been, been a part of, which is just really exciting. The, there's a pretty strong thread of examining compulsive sexual behaviors 
pornography use, pro problematic porn, porn use, and how how that affects people. And some some of the things I want to ask you about are uh, how uh, how using technology can help to understand and maybe even predict some of that. Um, but with uh, with all of the research you do, what would you say is the the central question or one of the central questions that you're exploring? Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a few central questions. Um, and um, we were trying to tackle them uh, with my research group one by one. So the first question seems to be probably silly for clinicians like uh, you and Ben, uh, was the question, you know, can sexual behavior be really addictive? Yeah, uh, Is it possible to get addicted to pornography? And, you know, as a clinicians, we, we, we are meeting people who, who really struggle with these uh, problems and we know that it's real. Uh, but for the psychiatric academic world, which makes decisions about the uh, classifications of diseases, about which uh, disorders will be refounded, treatment will be refounded by the uh, insurance systems all around the world, which not, uh, this question was not so obvious. Yeah, the answer for this question. And uh, for years, there was very strong uh, opinion that it's impossible to be addicted to behaviors. Yeah, It changed uh, during the last uh, 20 years, uh, first with gambling. Uh, and in 2013, for the first time, gambling was recognized as a behavioral addiction uh, in DSM-5. Uh, but about sexual behaviors, there was still very strong group uh, saying that, okay, it's such a natural behavior that you know, it cannot be perceived as a classified as an addictive behavior. Yeah, it's something natural for people like eating. Yeah. Uh, so one of the questions was to really look at the mechanism uh, of uh, this problematic sexual behaviors and see, uh, compare the brain mechanisms uh, with other addictive, non-addictive behaviors and find the answer. Okay. Is it possible that for some of the people it really resembles addiction uh, or is it a completely different uh, mechanism? Yeah. Uh, the second uh, big question was how to classify it. What are the main key criteria which allows to say that someone really have a problem uh, or not? Uh, where is the threshold where we can say that, okay, you need to go for treatment yeah, or you don't have to have a treatment? um how to how to distinguish between pathology and and uh, normative behavior and the third big question uh, which i'm interested in right now is how to effectively help people who suffer from uh, those compulsive sexual behaviors and how to not only help them to get out from the addiction but uh, as well uh, how to maintain the sobriety as long as possible that's great that would be the, the central question for, for us addictions counselors. Uh, how do we help people? So that's really exciting. I, I love this set of questions. And I'm thinking about, um, I mean, the first question of like, can, can sexual behavior be addictive? And I feel like comparing it to gambling definitely makes sense. But comparing it to food makes even more sense, too, because mm -hmm. like like you say, sex is a, a natural bodily bodily function, natural relationship function, uh, and even an essential part of our, of our species existence, uh, just the way that food is also, we, we, we need to eat. You can't abstain from food for the rest. Well, you could abstain from food for the rest of your life and it will be a very short life. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that that really hints at um, the recovery probably looks something like 
developing a healthy healthy relationship with with the process with the behavior um but um Maytusa and, and Ben too, uh, with observe because uh, observing that trend, I've observed that too that there is a reluctance sometimes to to label sexual behaviors as problematic. Or I know there's definitely a lot of concern of pathologizing certain behaviors or certain related lifestyles, value systems, uh, which would then lead to shaming people. Which I mean, we definitely don't want to do that. But mm -hmm. what have you seen? Are some of the reasons people might be reluctant to um, to consider uh, compulsive sexual behaviors or sexual addiction as really legitimate? So it really um, varies between the different countries. And um, US is uh, one of the most religious uh, country among the developed countries. And uh, here the religiosity is also very embedded with the political beliefs. Um, and this is also an issue when it comes to compulsive sexual behaviors. Uh, because it's very hard to, it's much more difficult in United States to talk about, uh, to have conversation about compulsive sexual behaviors, which is just, you know, focused on the scientific uh, evidences. Um, it's much easier to have such conversation in Europe uh, than in United States, because in United States, immediately all the political religious beliefs about uh, sexuality uh, pops uh, up, out. And um, one of the big uh, concern uh, was exactly related with those religious beliefs. Uh, so in monotheistic um, religious systems, um, very often sexual behavior is um, have very clear function, which is, um, you know, passing life further um, and um, like even you know like solitary sexual behavior is not seen as something uh, okay very often it's uh, categorized as a sin uh, masturbation and when it comes to pornography uh, where there are other people uh, presented uh, which is always uh, related to, to to something morally wrong bad um, and so on so from the religious perspective uh, for people who are uh, very conservative um, Christians, Muslims, um, or Jews, any use of pornography very often is perceived as something wrong. Yeah? Uh, from the clinical perspective, uh, we can look at uh, pornography use from many different angles. And one of the way to de define what is normal, what is not, is a quantitative norm. Yeah? Uh, so we can look. Uh, say, say that term again. What kind of norm? Quantitative. How? Uh, quantitative. Yeah. Quantitative. Yeah, quantitative. Yeah, my accent is not the best. So uh, that's okay. That's okay. Please. Yeah. Um, and uh, we can look how common such behavior is. Yeah. And right now, from the studies on the representative samples in Europe, in United States, we know that uh, almost fifty percent of males. Uh, adult males are watching pornography on the regular, uh, are watching pornography. Yeah? About 25% of them are watching on the regular basis, at least once um, a month. Um, sometimes, you know, much more often, at least once a week. Among female in, Uni in United States, it's about 20% of males in Europe, a little bit more, 26, 27% of females. Um, and uh, it's a very common behavior, so we can say it's something normal. 
But within this group, we have people who claim that it is a problematic behavior for them. And for some of them, it is a problematic behavior because of their uh, moral incongruence. Uh, so they believe that they, they shouldn't use porn at all. Um, but uh, for some of them, it's not a, a moral incongruence. It's just because of the very problematic patterns of use. So they use it much more often than they really want. Uh, it interrupts their daily life. Um, it interferes with their goals, uh, uh, family duties, uh, work-related duties, education, and so on. Uh, and this is a real issue. And it's important to disentangle uh, these few aspects, the moral beliefs about pornography and the actual uh, function of the pornography in someone's life. Yeah. Um, and here, you know, the whole debate is around around those topics. I hear where that debate is, and I, I mean, I would I would resonate a lot with that perspective as well. Uh, I I mean, I've definitely, you know, heard, heard the pushback that you know, as a sex addiction therapist, we're just out to pathologize everything, which is not the case. Um, and I've known people in this work who are coming at it from a very uh, religious perspective, even a very conservative one, uh, and also those who are coming at it from a more more strictly scientific perspective. And so, I mean, I, I get both perspectives. I think the really the really interesting perspective is is the more scientific one, because uh, to yeah to, to say, yeah, this person's having a problem with it because of their belief system. I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. We're, we're familiar with that. And there there's a way we would talk about that. We'd, we talk about, you know, what was your upbringing? What were the shame narratives? Um, what would be a healthy way to experience your sexuality while still being true to your values there, there there's a system for that um, but this this air this arena of the science looking at it uh, from a more amoral perspective saying uh, like you're saying it's not that I believe it's wrong but it's that it's taking up too much time or it's mm -hmm. harming me in some way or it's it's having a maladaptive effect on my moods or or I experience it as a compulsion like mm -hmm. um, it's no longer a choice for me to do it it's it's something I feel compelled to do, whether or not I really want to do it, even if, if even if I'm no longer really enjoying it too. Yeah, it's very common, and uh, also you know it very often um, it's it replaces the other sexual behaviors with partner, spouse, um, and uh, it becomes a very rigid strategy to cope with um, difficult emotion with stress and uh, replace the ability to, to, to develop other strategies, which would be much more um, productive, constructive. I think to, to add on to some of the things that get in the way of people um, being able to see this as an addiction, uh, the, the, the things that I've also seen um, come from a, diff a couple of different angles as well. Um, one of those is sort of the uh, uh, positive sexuality um, side of things that doesn't doesn't want to pathologize anything. Um, I think we kind of mentioned that, but yeah, we don't want to we don't want to pathologize the way anybody expresses their sexuality. So they, you know, there's a problem with diagnosing uh, somebody with with a problematic sexual behavior or uh, or an addiction in that area because it's 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 not you know it's not a positive 
not a positive perspective. The other thing I see is is uh, people that are concerned that it's a cop out, that um, if if it's uh, if it's an addiction, that the person then uh, is sort of let off the hook for the being responsible for the behaviors um, that have you know been hurtful to other people in their life, uh, and so those I think those are the the two angles that I often see people coming from that that struggle to you know or, or just don't want to to call this an addiction yeah and that's um yeah that, 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 that that's the right uh, point and uh, on one hand uh, we don't want to pathologize sexuality especially you know like it was a taboo for such such a long time and just all this era of uh, sexual freedom just you know started emerging a few decades ago and we are discovering it we are talking about it in the public domain and we don't want to like go back to to, to make it a taboo again. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we would like to be able to help those who really need this help. Yeah? And having something like uh, compulsive sexual behavior, compulsive sexual behavior disorder in the um, classification of disorders, uh, it's important because without any entity which describes this problem, uh, people don't know what's happening to them and uh, psychologists who are in the training and don't learn about it um, and so we don't know how to treat it uh, effectively and uh, obviously there are people for whom this is a problem and what is really nice in this final shape of the criteria uh, proposed by World Health Organization is that we don't define this problem through the you know, like frequency of the behavior. We don't say, okay, like, you know, masturbating 10 times a day, it's not normal, yeah? Or uh, masturbating three times a week, it's a normal thing, yeah? Um, because people have different sexual needs. Uh, we don't say which kind of uh, sexual behaviors are okay, which not. We just say that, um, okay, if it consumes too much uh, of your energy, of your time, if it results with um, interference uh, with the significant, have a negative impact on the significant um, areas of your life, uh, if it generates uh, additional stress um, and you cannot control it despite multiple trials of controlling it, then this is something what is problematic. Yeah? Uh, it's also this criteria that the only moral discomfort is not enough, yeah? Uh, because th this problem is of how to define it through the perspective of religion. But obviously, we also need to have some way to help those people who have this moral discomfort and uh, who are looking for some ways to express their sexuality. And um, they also need some attention and help. For sure. I've appreciated that about the criteria too, that it is more based on patterns than on specific behaviors, which I, which I think could be helpful. I mean, in thinking about the, the maybe the very religious person too, who, you know, they, I don't know, say it's, I don't know, say something even kind of devastating, like, like a spiritual leader, like, well, I mean, this would be a really bad one. Spiritual leader has an affair with someone in their congregation. That's also spiritual abuse. And that's kind of a, a whole different kind of worms. But, you know, something like that could be like egregiously damaging and devastating. 
without being an addiction necessarily. Or, you know, somebody could, some college kid could go out and do the whole, like, I get drunk, I have sex with anonymous people and use cocaine and, you know, have a lot of emotions about it. And then like, it happens once and never again. Some, some people with addictions do things like that uh, a lot of the time, but just because you do that thing doesn't mean that you're an addict. It means that you did that thing. But yeah, I feel like take, taking a taking a pattern approach and saying mm -hmm. um, it doesn't matter as much what you're doing as much as how you're doing it mm -hmm. or why you're doing it or what effect you're trying to, to go for mm -hmm. and what are the consequences as a result of it. Uh, so I, I do find that very helpful also. And here we're talking about, so, so it was the World Health Organization, that was last year, the year before? Yeah, they, so 2019, yeah. Yes, and they... They they released an official an official diagnosis for compulsive sexual behavior, um, which great then the criteria very much mirrored the the substance abuse criteria in, in the DSM, with like a little bit of variation, but it's it's essentially a lot of the same features. Yeah, there is a lot of similarities. However, in this um, in the current shape, there is no uh, the mood regulation and stress regulation function is not in this criteria which was a bit surprising for me, because obviously we see in the research that it plays a significant role among many uh, people who struggle with pornography or sexual behaviors. Uh, but, you know, maybe it will change in the future. Uh, but definitely this lack of control and negative impact on life um, is that they are the core uh, things here and it's really interesting because you know we were trying to to answer the question okay does quantity really matter or is it a matter of quality of those behaviors yeah and uh, we compared uh, huge groups of people who are addicted to pornography who are looking for treatment because of that uh, with people who use pornography on the regular basis, but never thought that they may be addicted and never looked for any treatment. And uh, there are people who really watch a lot, you know, they watch on a daily basis, but it just doesn't have negative or they don't see any negative impact on their life. Yeah, They watch it always only in the free time, for example. They never watch at work. They don't use it uh, in the stressful situations. Uh, so it doesn't interfere in their relation with their relationships, with their uh, work, education, and so on. So they are not interested in treatment. They don't experience it as a problem. Yeah, and there are people who may watch not very often, you know, like a few times a week only or once a week, but they watch not when they want, but when they have this craving, uh, this uh, internal, um, you know, need to watch it which is hard to inhibit, hard to overcome. And for them, it's like a completely, you know, losing of control over their behavior and they watch in really inappropriate uh, places or time. Uh, and, and they are looking for treatment. Yeah, for sure. So, so with that, so when it, when it comes to the people, people are seeking treatment, people are seeking help and we're seeking what are the best ways to help people. I wonder for, for you all, is there a an educational component to what you do in that? Well, backing up. So earlier, someone someone had mentioned the 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 idea of normal sexuality, like what is compulsive sexuality versus normal sexuality, in which I don't know. I I tend to not really like the word normal because it, a it carries some odd connotations. Also, I don't know if it exists. 
But uh, but I mean, we could maybe talk in terms of like healthier, unhealthier, maybe. But hey, like I suppose, how do you how do you work with that idea with, with clients? Like, do you uh, do you try to lead them to like a, a particular like ideal or offer some particular criteria of what healthy might be in whatever form it takes? Or like, how how do you to have that conversation with a client? Yeah, so I try. I, I usually try to let them define what are their goal uh, because there is so much variety and uh, what particular behaviors are problematic for them, uh, what they want to get rid of, uh, change, and how we can replace them with something uh, which, which is more ideal for them and less uh, destructive. Yeah? Um, and here sometimes, you know, the, the outcome is really surprising. Uh, but uh, this is what people sometimes want and what they are functioning well with. Uh, so, um, yeah, I remember a client who who just wanted to replace pornography use uh, with um, those casual sexual relationships. Uh, this person was very afraid of real life relationships. And uh, we tried to work on this goal and um, after you know, a couple of months, indeed, this person started having those casual relationships, uh, sexual relationships, and I was a little bit afraid that it will become a new addictive pattern. But actually, after uh, like another few months, it became boring for this person, and there was a need to uh, start, uh, you know, like relationship, deep relationship with one person. Yeah, and that was really positive outcome at the end. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, there were also other cases which were like not as positive at the end. And uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 always surprising when we let when I let the clients to define their goals. Uh, I'm interested. What is your experience here? Like, do you have the outcome in your mind, and you try to convince um, your clients uh, to what how it should look like, or or is it more flexible? I know for me, it's it's very similar to you, Matus. That um, you know, I, I I usually let the client kind of define what the problem is, um, what they where they would like to get to <clears throat> with uh, you know with pornography or masturbation or whatever whatever the issue is. You know, I I ask them, you know, what do you want that to look like, um, and. Uh, and then you know we, we create goals and ways of getting there and um, you know I think I think maybe the, the you know the long-term treatment of, of this is is a good topic for another another podcast because it's it's, it's a pretty deep pretty deep rabbit hole but uh, but could be really good to talk about but, but yeah that I mean that as far as initially I, I think it's important to, to allow the client to define, uh, what the problem is and what what their goal is, what they're trying to reach for. I, I would agree. And then with the other caveat, of, I, I mean, I'm a human in the room. I mean, I have a perspective and a bias and that's always going to be with me. And so, you know, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there's, I have hopes for what they're going to pick and for what they're going to choose a lot of the time. Um, and a lot of times that doesn't happen. So I'm like, oh, okay, uh, it's my, my clinical compartmentalization. 
Um, what I do talk about, though, is saying I'd like you to be able to be fully present in your own existence all of the time, or as much of the time as possible, and not need a behavior or an experience or an emotional high or a relationship as a filter for your own emotions, your own body. I mean, I talk a lot about intimacy and saying, okay, what are the patterns you're doing uh, with pornography, with other partners, with masturbation? You know, is it promoting a sense of intimacy? Is it pr promoting a sense of control? Is it promoting a sense of competency? Uh, is it promoting better connection? And just, I don't know, looking at, is this congruent with your values? Is it making, is it creating for you the kind of experiences that, that you want to create? And, you know, for some people, they, they do, they do lean the direction of like, yeah, like a lot of these behaviors I should, I should walk away from. And, and a lot of some other people, they're saying, no, nope, these, these are behavior, these are behaviors I want to keep and they, and they work well for me. Or just sometimes they're just not open to looking at those. They want to look at other things. And so, you know, that's, that's the limit as, as a counselor, like I can only work with the framework that is given to me. My, my world is as big as their world. So, and their world is often quite, quite large. So yeah, there, there's a lot of room to work. But yeah, I mean, it is very individual, individual, and it's very relationship oriented. I you know I I center relationships, and I say uh, I want you to have a a really healthy, integrated relationship with yourself and with people. And I mean, if you can do that with use of porn, with uh, casual sexual encounters, with masturbation, cool, uh, go for it. I mean, be careful because you know, even if that's possible, I mean, sex is still sex is never neutral. Porn is never neutral. It's it's always going to be a loaded experience. And so you just got to be able to pay attention to it really well. Yeah, I think that piece of, of connection uh, is really important um, as a, a, a direction. You know, I go with a lot of my clients in this area is, is talking about being one connected to yourself, fully, you know, fully connected to yourself, um, which I think is a, a big part of addiction is, is this disconnect between you, you know, your, I guess your, your consciousness and your emotions or your thoughts and, and not, not really wanting to be fully integrated, connected with yourself, um, but then also connection with others, you know, this is another key piece, I think, of being healthy in this area. Yeah, you know, like, uh, it's, in my experience, it's, you know, very difficult at the beginning when you meet the client for the first time, and uh, especially, you know, the clients who are directed by their wives or um, husbands, yeah, uh, who are not necessarily convinced that they have a problem, yeah, uh, to, to start working with, because uh, this integrity and good relation with myself, yeah, it's not there, yeah. If you know the brain of this person is constantly signaling a need for some new excitement, and it's more important than anything else, uh, it's hard to talk about being present right here, right now, having some connection. Not mentioning deeper connection with uh, with myself, and uh, yeah, this is uh, this is a topic for the whole podcast, probably, or like how to really start in such situation, how to motivate those people, how to let them um, find the good reason to really uh, change something in their life. And I think uh, we don't have a good data for that yet, but uh, like majority of our research showed that uh, people who are really willing to start a treatment and commit to the treatment are those people who really experience uh, very significant losses because of their behavior and it has a strong impact on, on, on their life. 
and they really need to experience it. But it would be still, I still believe that, you know, uh, it would be uh, important to find some way to to help people start this process of uh, healing a bit sooner before they really destroy their lives. Yeah. That would be nice. Uh, so maybe we should do more work with teens and kids uh, and or parents, which, okay, I'm going to can of worms that one because I could say a lot about that. Anyway, along this idea of, of uh, getting people started on the process and helping people, uh, let's talk a little bit about how to help people. Um, Mitsuz, I'd love to hear some of what you've learned and observed, what you're learning in your research about how to help people. Uh, in particular, um, I know we had a conversation around some of the technology you're using mm -hmm. or experimenting with that, that might be helpful too. Uh, so say a little bit more or say a lot mm -hmm. about that. Okay. Uh, so there are a few aspects of that, as, as we mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. The one aspect is how to help people start, really, you know, treatment and quit. And uh, here we know that a lot of people who uh, start treatment never finish it. It's like about 50, sometimes more percent of people. Uh, and it's the same amount in the 12-step groups, group treatment, individual treatment, and so on. A lot of people just quit uh, somewhere on the way. And another aspect is if someone really wants to quit and is this person is effective, uh, how to uh, help this this person to maintain sobriety uh, or, you know, like cultivate their, their, their freedom from addiction. Uh, so uh, according to this first part, how to start, we were doing a brain-related research uh, when we were looking at the brain mechanism of this problematic pornography use, addictive pornography use. And uh, based on the identified brain circuits which are involved in this process, we designed also a study with um, different um, pharmaceutical substances. Uh, we were testing two of uh, such substances, naltrexone and paroxetine. Uh, versus placebo. This research is um, under review right now. Based also on the previous uh, clinical cases, we know that uh, some substances like uh, paroxetine or, or naltrexone may be helpful for uh, people at these initial stages. Yeah? Um, I'm not giving here any medical advice. I'm just referring to the, to the research which will be available online probably by the end of this year. This is one thing. Another thing is, okay, once we have someone who really can uh, stop using uh, pornography or stop getting in, in involved in the sexual behavior in the compulsive way, we need this psychological component uh, to change the way of uh, coping with stress, with uh, emotions, to develop um, better strategies, uh, to be able to build uh, good relationships and so on. And this is a really important part. And then after, you know, this treatment is uh, getting better and better and the person is staying free, uh, how do we uh, help uh, people to stay sober? Yeah? And here uh, we started looking at our data because in the longitudinal studies, um, we were collecting a lot of ecological momentary assessments. Um, those are data which you collect within the moment uh, in the real life, mostly on the um, uh, cell phones. So the cell phone just asks you some questions, you answer it, it takes about 30, 45 seconds. And uh, this is the way of collecting data in the longitudinal research these days. 
And we looked at this data and uh, I asked the question, can we predict relapse based on those assessments? And it appeared that it's possible. Uh, so we conducted a large study with 17,000 subjects. 17,000? Uh, 17, 17 yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, we used machine learning methods there and, and artificial intelligence. And we developed a method which allows to predict a relapse even 48 hours in advance uh, with, with really high accuracy, uh, over 80%. Um, and uh, in May, there will be an app available um, for iPhone and Android. Uh, in English version, it's called, it will be called uh, Abstainer. Uh, I can send the link once it's available. And yeah. uh, basically, you know, with this app, you can monitor yourself and you can get those predictions and warnings. Yeah. Uh, I hope, you know, over the time we will add some more interventions there. So it will be really helpful, not only warning you, but, but also helping you. 48 hours, it's enough time to really do something. You could uh, do a whole lot of intervention yeah. in 48 hours. Yeah, exactly. So you can, you can really help yourself with this technology and I'm really excited about it. However, you know, to be honest, if you are really embedded in some healing community and you have uh, your group of support, you're attending, you know, some meetings, treatment on a regular basis, you are usually able to catch all these things a little bit earlier and then even this 48 hours. Uh, but uh, if you know, if you are on your more on your own or you are, you know, less uh, aware, then definitely this is something what may help you, support you. And uh, it's important that among these 17,000 people, there were not only sex addicts and porn addicts, but also, you know, people addicted to uh, alcohol, uh, stimulants uh, like methamphetamine. And, uh, so you could predict relapse yeah. for a variety of a variety of addictive behaviors. Yeah, with a then. few different groups. Okay. There are some groups where we are unable to predict anything, like tobacco uh, or binge eating. <laughs> it doesn't work well. Uh, okay. But, but uh, in case of pornography use, it's predictable. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, and I, I would agree too. I mean, someone who is, like you said, embedded in a really supportive healing community, they 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 might have because of all of the, all that support, they might have cultivated a greater awareness of themselves and maybe on their own would be able to recognize these things 48 hours in advance or even longer and, and rely on that. I am thinking though about, you know, those people who, you know, maybe, maybe even with the community, they're still maybe because of like a lot of deep underlying trauma or maybe like deeper uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies or a lot of, maybe like a lot of other more, more mental barriers to, to insight uh, of some sort. The people who talk about experiencing the very, the very sudden, sudden relapses, uh, the, you know, I'm, I was fine. I was fine. I was motivated. I was motivating it. And then, oh wait, then there, there I was doing it again. Oh, darn. Um, it seems so maybe it might be really helpful for, for folks like that who are still gaining a lot of insight are still learning how to, to track with their own selves when this might happen. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, we can see relapses even among people who have few years of sobriety and uh, it's surprising for them and for everyone around. Uh, but, you know, our memory is really limited and especially our working memory 
is, uh, has a limited capacity. We can only operate with few objects. And we, we usually, when, 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 we, when you talk probably, and when I talk to people who relapsed, they mostly see those most immediate causes of the relapse, yeah? But very often it starts, you know, days before uh, with different uh, changes of the pattern of sleep, of uh, physical activities, less motivation for the things which were driving them. Then, you know, more difficult emotions comes in, stress, um, other things, you know, like decrease the quality of the relationships, more isolating and so on. And um, using all these new devices like, you know, smartphones, smartwatch, which allows to track all these things and uh, analyze it for you and keep monitoring all these variables for you, um, it helps because it can do something what our memory is unable to do, especially when we are focused on our future goals, not on the past. That's super exciting. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like. <laughs> I was I was really skeptical about it at the beginning because you know like um, it sounds like impossible, uh, but with really you know big data. Uh, and uh, good scientific framework, it appeared to be possible to some extent, and I hope it will only get better in the future and it will be helpful. Yeah. yeah, I think it'll be really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. Oh man, that's that's exciting. Um, Matthias, thanks for taking some time to, to share about this and about your research and some really bright, promising possibilities. Uh, we'll definitely want to watch for this. So the app will be called Abstainer. Yeah, Abstainer. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. that's great. Matus, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you for either a clinical consultation or just advice or just to hear more of your thoughts, uh, where can you be found in the world and on the web? Um, yeah, so on the web, uh, you can find me at madgola.net. Uh, and um, I can post a link uh, with, uh, below this podcast. Uh, but uh, uh, you can also just Google my name and uh, find my research in Google Scholar and uh, look at the studies I was doing. Uh, it may be interesting for some of the people. And um, the app uh, will be available at Abstainer with double P. Uh, it's a p p stainer and uh, app stainer. yeah uh, it's like app stainer uh, okay i get it <laughs> exactly uh so uh it will be available um in the mid may uh right now it's in the closed uh, beta tests uh if anyone would like to test it uh you can just email me um at m g o l a at u c s d dot e d u and uh i can uh, also provide the link. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for that. And yeah, everyone do check out um, Mintu Scola on Google Scholar and on the net. And yeah, uh, beta trials, you could be part of something special, something historically groundbreaking here. So you should look them up there. But yeah, thank you for, for being here. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was great to see you and hear you. And yeah, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, listener, for tracking along and hopefully considering some some new ideas that will hopefully be, be helpful, thought-provoking, or at least just provoking. And again, 
we we do appreciate your feedback and your reviews uh even if you disagree with us we we could still benefit from hearing that and learning from that and um if you really like us you can visit us at patreon.com slash mark council show some practical dollar love because we like that too uh, thanks again, Ben and Matus, and uh, let's keep the conversation going. We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music